Good morning. It is a honor and a privilege for me to be able to be up here uh, speaking with you all. Uh, I thought I'd start by uh, sharing a little bit of my testimony with you. I grew up Catholic, uh, and I went to church every Sunday. Uh, and, and if I were to tell you what I thought about God back then, I would think, I would say that God was this faraway being, uh, way up there, and I was this speck of dust down on his earth. And I didn't think that God would ever really think of me. Uh, but I went to church every Sunday. I feel like I went to church, church was built around uh, my family. My family was my everything back then. Uh, I have a huge extended family. To, to give you a little like taste of how big, on Thanksgiving, we would have on the table, we, we didn't have room for fixins. We had five turkeys that we'd just have all in a row. And we'd start in the afternoon and we'd run all the way into evening. And by the end, you just wouldn't see a thing left on any of the turkeys. They'd all be gone. All the fixins were in the kitchen. It's, it's how big my family was. Uh, we had so much joy growing up as a family. I, I remember just fond memories of when I was a kid. A and yet, I felt like even though I was so young, I felt like there was something that was missing. There was, there was something that was not present that should be. And, and I didn't exactly know what that was. Um, but I thought, okay, it's my, I need to figure out what is this thing that, that's missing. And so um, throughout high school, I thought, okay, friends. Like I've always been centered around family. Friends is gonna be the thing that I'm probably missing. I, I don't really have many friends that I can say are true friends. Went to high school, made friends as much as I could, as many as I could. Uh, but I felt like every time I was trying to make a friend, I felt like I was changing myself to be the person that they'd want me to be so that they'd be, I'd be friends with them. And so like, I found myself at the end of high school, I had all these friends, and yet I had no idea who I was because I was a different person for everyone. I was the chameleon. And so that really just fell flat on his face. I'm like, okay, that didn't really work. All right, so college. College is finally going to be the place where I find what it is that's missing here. And uh, I go to the number one party school in, in the country at the time. So, I mean, I, I meet a bunch of different people and I enjoy them. I have good friendships. I'm finally being myself. But still, there's something that's missing. And it's getting worse. I feel like in myself, I'm feeling more and more dissatisfied. There's something out there that I'm not getting. What is this thing? I had no idea. Well, meanwhile, on that campus, there was a group of individuals who were Christians. There were, there were Christians who lived differently than uh, I thought everyone else was living differently. Like one Christian in particular that I met on campus, uh, he wore this big cross. It was literally like the size of his torso. It was like a cross, it was like that. And uh, his, his name was Jim. He's Jim of Jim and Lena that go to Seven Mile Road here. <laughs> yeah, you, you should ask him to check out that cross. It's like probably in his backyard. Like, up. So <laughs> I meet Jim and Literally, like everyone on campus, you could talk to anyone on campus and they'd be able to tell you there was something different about him than anybody else that was on campus. 
And what I didn't get at the time, it wasn't necessarily him. See, like, he was drinking the living water that truly satisfies. The, the living water that truly satisfies. So when everyone else is just flailing around, trying to drink up things, and, and it was failing, you could just tell all over the place. You take a look at that guy, and he, he was... He knew that God was good. See, to him, God was good, and so he didn't have to look anywhere else. And that's the third G in this preaching series, life in 4G. Uh, we heard the first G, which Ajay preached to us, that God is great, so we don't have to be in control. He told us about this great God who is in control of any, everything, that literally this God who can take in the hollow of his hand all the water of the earth, and it's just, it's just there sitting in the hollow of his hand. He's so great. that You can look up at the stars in the sky, and, and every night God would call each of those stars out by name, not missing one, bringing them out. God was so great. And yet, we seek to control our lives and to do things with our lives and and we asked God to take a back seat. And when we asked, when, when he addressed why that was, it was we believed, we really truly believed that we could do a better job at, at running things than God can. God, who can do all those things, can do a, we can do a better job than him. It's, it's, it's sinful. It's, it's, it's an unbelief that God can control those things. And yet, our God is great, so we don't have to be in control. We heard the second G from Sibi, that God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. Uh, that was a real poignant word for me when I was sitting in those seats. I felt like Sibi was talking directly to me because as I was pre preparing for this sermon, I was living in fear day after day after day. I was in fear of you all. I was in fear that... I wouldn't receive the approval from you like I was seeking for. I was, and all my days were marked with fear. And yet Sibi preached about the fear of God, the glory of God. That in the midst of God, the seraphim, a heavenly being, would need to cover their face and cover their feet before that God. I imagined if I was before that God, I would totally be undone. I would be flat on my face. If I feared God, if I really see how glorious he is, then I wouldn't be fearing man. That belief and my, my belief that God is glorious, that would dispel my fear of men. God is glorious, so I don't have to fear others. And today we get to the third G. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. I'm going to take a moment and pray again, and uh, we'll dive in together. Dearest Heavenly Father, you are good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. God, I pray that you would use those words that I would say, and that you would send it straight into your people by your spirit, God. If I'm standing up here alone, this is all in vain. But God, I, I come and I stand under your word, and we stand under your word. So God, would you change our hearts and God, help us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Help us to drink in your living water and see that you are the one 
that truly satisfies. I pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I used to think that I found God, right? I was telling you my story. I was looking for something, searching for something, and just nothing was working. I used to think that I found him. I don't think that anymore. Uh, when I read the Samaritan, of the story of the Samaritan woman, I see God's pursuit after her. And when I read her, I see me. I, I see God is seeking me and pursuing me and that he found me on that campus. Uh, and, and if you're honest, right, if we read this, a part of the Samaritan woman, I feel like you will see yourself in the Samaritan woman as well, right? So you might disagree with you. You may think I'm crazy, right? For example, this woman had five failed marriages. And so right there, you stop me and you go, all right, Joe, stop right there. You might say, I'm supposed to be the Samaritan woman. I don't see that I'm anything like the Samaritan woman. I'm nothing like the Samaritan woman. She's had five failed marriages. I don't see anything of that in my life. How could I be that? So if you were to talk to me a few years ago, I would totally agree. I would go, yeah, all right. If I was reading this passage a couple of years ago, I would, I would actually stand in judgment over this woman. I would say, five failed marriages? What, what happened? Like, don't you watch Dr. Phil? Like, don't you, like, wouldn't you go to counseling with your husband, try everything? I can see one or two maybe, but five, five failed marriages, I don't understand. I look at this passage today, and I see it in a totally different way. I look at this passage, and I see a woman that has this longing. I see a woman that has this thing in her heart that she can't fill, that she can't satisfy, that she is on a search for. She's on a serious search, and, and, and she can't find what she's looking for. I mean, what's going on with these marriages anyway, right? Five failed marriages. I can, I can think of a couple of reasons why these marriages might have failed, right? There's, one is maybe she was looking for that satisfaction that she could get from her husband. She poured all of that into her husband. And wouldn't you know it, the husband fails. He can't satisfy her. And so she ducks out of that relationship, out of that marriage. Maybe it was vice versa. Maybe, maybe it was the husband. Maybe the husband looked for that satisfaction from the wife. And he couldn't get that from her, and so the marriage dissolved. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe she loves the newness of marriage and how the new marriage feels, and yet when the hard times comes, she folds or he folds. Maybe she loves the wrong type of man. Maybe it's, it's a man that doesn't really love her, but she meets, he meets some sort of need, and so in marriage she hopes to change him, and yet the marriage falls apart. It doesn't, doesn't hold up. In the end, what she thought would bring her happiness, what she thought would bring her that satisfaction that left her empty. And not only did that, it highlighted something. It highlighted her huge soul thirst that she had. She had this thing, this soul thirst that she could not fill with these multiple marriages. It may have even left her with a huge wound of, I can't even fill any of these men's satisfaction. And so maybe it left her with this huge wound. I read this woman in this story, 
and I see me. I see all the things that I looked for to fill my satisfaction and, and what I can do to fill up my self-worth, what I can do to fill up my pleasure, to, to get something out of anything. And, and maybe this woman looked to marriage and she's looking for that satisfaction in marriage or maybe it was in sex or maybe it was never wanting to be alone. I want to turn that question around and I want to pose it to you all. What is it that you run to for satisfaction? What is it that you run to? Is it attention? Is attention your thing? Maybe you're in work and there's some coworker that gives you that attention that you long for, that you crave. And so you take the long way around to go beyond where you went to and, and get that attention and get, get back to your desk the long way. Maybe your, your husband or your wife, your girlfriend or your boyfriend, your parents used to give you that attention and now they don't give you that anymore, so you look elsewhere. Maybe it's man's approval. You work your tail off to get that promotion at work and it goes to that person. I work so much harder than they do. Actually, the work that I do makes them look good. Why do they get the approval and I don't? Or maybe it's, I work so hard to get an A and I get an A minus. And I don't hear the end of it that I got the A minus. Why didn't you get the A? Why didn't you get the A? And, and it drives you crazy. And yet, your sister can go out and get a C. And your parents is all jumping up and down and they're like, Joe, go to Carvel and get an ice cream cake because, and put a whole huge C on it and say, we're so proud of you in the middle. <laughs> because we are so proud of her. Why, why not, why them and not me? It doesn't make any sense. Why does she get it and I don't? Is man's approval your thing? Is it pleasure? If I can get home right now, I know I can be alone. I can jump on the internet and look at pornography. I know I'll hate myself for doing it. But there's this huge urge in me and I cannot squash it. And so I am just going to run. I'm going to dwell in it. I'm going to try to hold on to that for as long as possible and let that fade. And I promise, I promise, this is going to be the last time that I do this. And yet the cycle happens again and again. Is pleasure the thing that you run to? Or maybe it's rest. This is a huge one for me that I struggle with. Maybe it's rest. Maybe you go and you are at work and they have you work late and you come home and you are just totally exhausted. You're tired of using your brain, your brain hurts. So you come and you sit down in front of that TV and you go, I just wanna veg out. I just wanna shut my mind off to the world. I know I have some things to do, but let me just sit down and watch a little TV so that I can unwind, right? And you start, you put on the first episode and you put on the second episode and the second episode turns into the fifth episode and you haven't eaten. I, I look around, my wife is asleep, my son is asleep, I haven't done anything. I've tried to, to derive this rest from this TV and, and look, I've looked up and everything has passed me by. Now, I'm not saying that TV is wrong here, right? But just the way that I've abused it, it's totally sinful. I'm running to that for rest. You can probably think of a 
bunch of different reasons, right? We could go on, right? Maybe you've thought of the thing that maybe that you run to at home. You see, we can say that God is good, right? We can all say that. It's very easy to say, God is good? Yeah, God is good. But we don't believe that God is better than the attention that we receive at work. We don't believe that God is more satisfying than the pornography that we can look at when we get alone. And we don't believe that God can really give us rest like modern family can give us rest. Behind all our sin, there's unbelief. I'll say that again. Behind all of our sin, there is unbelief. Is God really better than all those things? I want to tell you that all the things that we run to, all the things that we set up to give us satisfaction in our lives, those things, those those lesser wells, I want to tell you that those things don't truly satisfy. And to go even further, that those things are a big lie. And those things are lies that lead to death. And in this scripture that we're going to look at today, there is a lot of liberty that we can get from the things that we run to for satisfaction. You see, in this scripture, we're going to see that God is good. He truly satisfies. And we don't have to look anywhere else. So I want you, what I want you to do is when you go home, I want you to read this word. I want you to devour this word. I, I, I want you to preach it to yourself. And I want you to preach it to others who look to other things for satisfaction. All right, let's dive in. All right, so we look at verse 4 together. John verse, chapter 4, and we're looking at verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. All right, we'll stop there. Samaritan Jews did not have much interactions together, all right? They went far and wide to avoid each other, all right? So where Jesus is, Jesus is in Judea, and he needs to get over to Galilee. The text says, and he had to pass through Samaria, but he didn't have to pass through Samaria, okay? He could have taken the route by the water, and, and, and actually a lot of people of that day would probably have done that, Jews of that day would probably have done that, because they want to do anything they can to not pass through Samaria because to them, they're just dirty and filthy and you should have nothing to do with them. And so go the longer route. Go by the water because we don't want to go and pass through Samaria. So Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. All right? Here's another thing. To draw a modern-day example, it's like the KKK needed to get home by driving through North Philly. All right? They just won't do it. They're going to drive the wrong way around. They're not going to go through North Philly in order to get home, right? This is, this, this is the story here. So why, is, why do they have to go through Samaria? Why is the text saying that? I believe the text is saying that because Jesus has an appointment with this woman by the well. Jesus has an appointment with the woman at the well, and he's going to pursue that appointment. All right, so let's look at the scene. So Jesus and his disciples are traveling. They stop in Sychar. He sends all his disciples for food because all of them are needed for food, right? No, right? Like, 
Jesus is sending all of them away because he has this appointment. He's going to meet with this woman at the well. He sends all of them away, and there he is. He's sitting at the well. He's resting. He's tired. And then here comes this woman with this bucket. She notices Jesus right away. She knows right away, well, this guy's a Jew. Why is he here? You know, I don't know what else she probably would have thought, but she probably thinks, all right, I'm just going to go about my business. She dumps the bucket in. She she drives the water up, and as she's drying it up, bringing it up, Jesus turns to her and says, give me a drink. I want to tell you guys, this is a totally culturally unacceptable scene, all right? This is totally culturally unacceptable. Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. You see that in the response that the woman has, right, when he asks for the drink. She goes, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She's like, how are you asking me for this? Like, a Jew asking a me, a Samaritan, for something to drink. And we're not even touching the fact that back in that day, a man would never ask a woman for that as well. But here is Jesus, a Jew and a man, asking the Samaritan, a woman, for a drink. I want, you to, I want you to see why he's doing this. Jesus is going totally counter-cultural. He's not obeying the rules of the land here. He is doing this because he is pursuing her. He's traveled all this way to talk with her. He is breaking taboos so that he can press into her spirit, into her heart, and to speak with her. And so Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus is not being arrogant here when he's saying, if you knew the gift of God, right? He's not being arrogant. He's, He's just stating fact. If you knew the gift of God. But the Samaritan woman, she, she picks up on that claim. Oh, you're superior, huh? Oh, here we go, Jews and Samaritans. This is why we don't mix well together. All right. You know, and so let's look at her response, right? She sees his superiority. She's going to challenge him on it. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the, water is, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank for him himself as did his sons and his livestock. All right, let's stop there. She goes, oh, you're a gift of God, huh? Oh, are you greater than my father Jacob, our father Jacob? She, she's not having it, all right? I, I was trying to think of, a, of a, an example of, of how to draw, right? It would be like me going to my wife, Lisa, and saying, oh, Lisa, if you knew the gift of God. And, and before, before I could even... Before I can even stop on that sentence, she would probably stop what she's doing, close her book, and be like, gift of God, right? And she'd start going through the whole alphabet and listing the reasons why I'm not a gift of God. Before she ran out of letters and gone to A-B, A-A, A-B, I would stop her and be like, all right, all right, I back up. I am not greater. I am not this gift of God. I am not a gift at all, right? I would stop right there. And this Samaritan woman, and she's all over that, just like Lisa would be, right? This Samaritan woman goes to him, and he goes, oh, you're a gift of God, huh? 
Well, are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you greater than him? See, she doesn't believe that Jesus is greater than her father Jacob. She doesn't believe it. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't believe that either in the places where we run to. Right? The woman's unbelief is our unbelief. Yeah, Jesus is good, but he's not better than the enjoyment I get when I have sex outside of marriage or uh, even inside marriage. He's not better than that. He's not better than the enjoyment I get when I sit with my family. He's not better than that. I'd rather sit with them than sit with him. He's not better than the feeling I get when I abuse alcohol and drink too much. He's not better than that. He's not better than the security that I get from the money that I have in my bank account. He's not, he doesn't provide me that security that that, that money does. If we're honest, there are places in our hearts where we believe that those things are better than he is. And yet what Jesus is saying is not an empty claim. What Jesus says is he's better. And Jesus, Jesus could respond totally different than what he does, right? Jesus can say, oh, am I better than your father Jacob? Well, you better believe that I am. I made your father Jacob. I am better than he is, right? He doesn't say that, right? He doesn't go that route. He just humbly states the truth of things. He just humbly states it. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to drink water, to draw water. Here, Jesus' second attempt at this woman for going deep, right? The first one, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you for water, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. And she goes, she scoffs at him, oh, yeah, well, where's your bucket? How are you going to draw that water? Where is that, where's that water at? And now here, he offers her living water that he says, you won't be thirsty again, and that that water that I give you, it's going to become a spring in you. And that spring will well up to eternal life. I am superior. You, you will not thirst again. And yet here's her response. You think she gets it, but she doesn't. She goes, give me this water so that I will not, so that I will not thirst again and have to come here. She, she doesn't really get it here. She doesn't truly get it. You see, that's what happens when we drink from other wells, right? When we drink from other wells, what happens is we lap up this thing that we think satisfies. But what happens in our hearts is that it gets harder and harder and deader inside. And what also happens is we get this tunnel vision, right? We drink these things. We think that it satisfies. We get this tunnel vision this thing is the only thing that is going to satisfy me, and, and nothing else will. 
There's nothing else that can do it except this thing. I'm always going to have this thing. I'm always going to run to this thing. That's what sin does. It makes us hard, and it gives us tunnel vision to the things that we draw from, right? But this thing, I want to tell you the truth of this. This satisfaction that we think we receive, it's only a shadow of, of the true satisfaction that we've been built to receive. But she is just so locked up. She is just so encumbered because of the pursuit of her happiness, the pursuit of her satisfaction in these multiple marriages, that she doesn't get it. She's so locked up. She is face to face with the true satisfier. The satisfier that this is what she's been looking for. This is what she's been searching for. She's face to face with it, and she just doesn't see it. She's totally blind to it. And yet, Jesus presses in. Jesus offers her this water, this water that truly satisfies, that gives eternal life. Jesus confidently offers himself to her, and not even a second thought. Am I greater than Jacob? I offer you this water that will never, that you'll never thirst again. You'll be truly satisfied. It'll lead you to eternal life. He presses in a second time. I love his pursuit. I want to tell you the end of my testimony. Um, so I was on these campus with these Christians, and I would have interactions with them here and there. And there was one interaction that I had with my now wife, Lisa, who was a Christian at the time. And we were sitting there, we were in a group, and we're dropping off like flies. We're studying, and everyone, you know, you don't really study. You say you're studying, but you're having a good time with everybody. Everybody's dropping off finally after they study, and they're getting out of here. And I'm left with Lisa. And uh, she brings the conversation to God. And so I, I've been curious about this because I know that there's something different about them, and yet I'm still a little uncomfortable, right? So I'm sitting with there, and she gives me this question that just bowls me over. She, she just asks the question. She's like, what have you ever done for God? So I thought immediately I had an answer. I, I, I'm Catholic. You don't know. Like, I, I go to church every Sunday. I did that. And so I'm about to give her that answer, and then I stop in my tracks, and I go, wait a minute. Like, I always did church for family. I never really did church for God. And then I thought, well, you know, well, hey, I'm a good person. I must have done something for God somewhere along the line. And I start thinking, and I start thinking. And as I'm doing that, as that realization has hit me, there's this huge weight. I can't even begin to describe to you what it was. There was just this huge weight that came over my heart. And I felt sick to my stomach. I was just like, all right, this, this feeling really sucks. I don't, I, this is, I don't know what's going on. And so I just stopped the conversation right there. I start packing up my books. She's like, what's wrong? I said, oh, I just don't feel well. I'm just going to get out of here. Pack my books. I'm headed out. And she just, she just yells out. She goes, hey, just, just talk to him. And I go, yeah, OK. I'm feeling horrible. I, I, just, I get out of there. I get out of the campus center. I'm walking. It's at nighttime. It's, it's beautiful. I, but I don't see any of the surroundings around me. I'm just absorbed with this feeling that I feel, I, this heaviness that I have. And I keep walking, and it keeps getting worse. And I try to ignore it. I go a couple more steps. I can't ignore it anymore. So I just stop where I am, and I just look up. I see all the stars, and I just go, all right, God, if you're real, if you're really real, then take this weight away from me. And right then, 
He took the weight away, and, and what he put in its place was just this overwhelming joy. I cannot even describe to you with words. I knew right then, that right then and there, that all the things that I listened to, all the things that I thought were fairy tales, it was real. God was real. He wasn't this faraway being who never who looked at me as a speck. He was real and he loved me. All of that just came flooding in. Living water comes flooding in. I can't hold it into myself anymore. So I run to the place where I was going to, which was my friend's house, and I just tell them. I recount the whole story. I was in the campus center, and this person made me feel bad. And I thought, oh, man, what, what's wrong with her? And, and, then, you know, and I'm like, oh, you know, she goes, just talk to her. And I'm like, yeah, OK, you've done enough. And now I'm like, I'm like, I'm like all right, I, I couldn't help it. There's this weight. And I said, God, if you're real, take this thing away from me. And, she, and then he did, and he just showed himself to be real. God is real. And God, he's satisfied. God is real. And, and this is my good friend, and she thinks, that's awesome. But she's scared to death of me, right? She's scared to death of me. She's like, okay, that's awesome. I see that there's something that happened here. I run back. I run back to Lisa, who told me the story. Hey, Lisa, you made me feel horrible, but I... I I, I asked God, I was like, okay, God, like, what have I ever done? I've never done anything. There was this weight, and I asked God to lift it, and he did. God is real. And I must have scared her too, but she's like, oh, that's awesome. She knew something happened. The living water started invading. I, I walked her back to her place, and I started going home, and I thought, no, I can't go home. I need to tell somebody else. So I run downstairs to a friend of mine's, and I start calling everybody up. I say, hey, everybody in Indian Quad, I need you to come down to Mace's room. I have something to tell you. I promise it won't be uh, a waste of your time. Come on down. They all start filtering in, and I recount the story. I recount the story. This is the thing that I've been looking for all my days, and I haven't found it that here's this thing that truly satisfies, this thing that truly fills your heart, this living water. It was, it was amazing. It, this satisfaction that I thought I had in other things, it didn't compare to this, to life with God, to the living water that truly satisfied. I walked with that for many days, drinking that in, uh, but then, I started inching away from the well. I started just slowly inching away from the well. You see, my flesh began to remember the old things that I dwelled in. And I look back at those lesser wells. And I thought, maybe I'm missing out. And I start to go back and I start to, to see, maybe I, maybe, I, maybe I can drink of those things again. And uh, it's, it's like the hymn that we sing here, Come Thou Fount. There's this line in there where it goes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God that I love. Uh, that's what happened. I, I, I heard stories from my friends of just inappropriate experiences and piqued my interest. The world is telling me how I should live in college. And I'm not living that way anymore. Maybe I should be. Maybe it was just the, the lies of the enemy just, just telling me, hey, you're missing out. You're missing out. Keep, look back here. You're missing out. And he's just my old flesh just coming back and saying, no, those things, they gave me something. 
and I'd go back and I'd get that, that slight pleasure and then gone, fleeting, fading, gone. And what was left was just guilt, it was shame, it was brokenness, it was addiction. It's just like what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2, verses 13. He says, my, my people, they've committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of water, the spring of living water, and dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that don't even hold water. Here's what happened. There I am. I'm drinking the refreshing water of Christ. This is the thing that I've finally been waiting for, right? And yet my heart strays. My heart strays. I listen to the lie of the enemy, and I go back, and I, I kneel down, and I start lapping up the toilet water. And that's the image. That's what it is. That's what we do. We dig our own cisterns. Can't even hold any water. We forget that God satisfies, that he truly satisfies. We forget that he's more than enough. All right, so let's get back to the story. The woman at the well says, give me that water so that I won't be thirsty and have to come here. And Jesus takes a weird turn. He says, go call your husband and come here. All right, so what's going on, right? This word here happens twice in this, in this gospel. It happens right here in this passage. The woman says, that would be nice to not be thirsty and not have to come here. And Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. All right, so what's going on? Right? We have to take a step back in order to see it all. The woman is coming to the well at the sixth hour. The sixth hour is around noon. It's around the time when the sun is at its highest. Nobody is going to do work when the sun is at its highest, not this labor-intensive work. But here's this woman who's coming at this hour. Why is she doing it? It begs the question, why is she there at that hour? I want to say she's there, it's because of her failed marriages. She's there because of her failed marriages. See, if she goes at dusk, she's going to go with a bunch of different people that go to draw from this well. And you can almost hear the people, right? You can hear them saying, oh, there she is. There's the woman with the five failed marriages. Hey, did you, five failed marriages? Did you just see the, the one she's with now? She, she, that's not even her husband. She's sick and tired of going and hearing all of that with the people. And so she's going at an off-peak hour to get water all by herself. It shows something, right? It shows that she's, she's just, she's ashamed. She's ashamed that she's going at, she's ashamed of her sin and where it's brought her. Five fair marriages. And so when Jesus offers her water that truly satisfies, she goes, that's great. Sign me up, Jesus. Because I don't want to have to come back here anymore and hear that anymore. Sign me up. You see, she doesn't want to have to come here. And then Jesus goes, oh, okay. Go call your husband and come here. Jesus is putting a finger right on what she's trying to avoid. He's trying to get to the reason why she's trying to stay shallow and avoiding him. The woman answered him, I have no husband. 
And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where we should worship. All right, let me stop there. Jesus is getting to the heart of it. He's getting to the heart of why she, he's rejecting her, that she's rejecting him. He knows things about her that he shouldn't know. He brings her sin life into the light, right? He goes, oh, you, you were right in saying you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one that you are now with is not your husband. And then she makes the worst transition that you can possibly make in this situation. She goes, huh, five husbands, yeah, I perceive that you are a prophet. Where should we worship? Should we worship over there or should we worship over there? What do you think? Right? It's the worst possible transition that you can possibly make here, right? But what is she trying to do? She's a pro. She's staying shallow with Jesus. She doesn't want to go anywhere near deep with him, even though he's pressing in and going deep with her. She's a pro at it. If she just hangs back and in the shallows, no one will ever really know her, and she'll keep her sin in the dark. And that's the code that she lives by, and it's the code that we live by. Okay? Jesus' words in, in John chapter 3, verse 20, it just rings true here. It's just a little bit earlier than this, than this passage. I feel like it's done for a reason. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his wicked deeds be exposed, lest his works be exposed. She hates that her sin is in the light. But that's exactly where Jesus needs to bring it. See, her multiple marriages have left her empty, just truly empty. And what has left with her is shame. That's it. And so what about you? Are you living with shame? Are you keeping God at arm's length? Is your sin, is your shame private? Maybe your, your shame is private. You have it. It's locked up. All these lies are layering it. Make sure that it stays quiet and it stays away from everyone else. And you can't be known because you need to keep that facade up. Maybe your shame is private. Maybe your shame is public. Now your shame is before everyone. And so you rush out of the spotlight. You go at the, to the well at off-peak hours. And if you do run into anybody, you stay shallow with them. Maybe your shame is public. But whatever it is, your shame does the same thing. It keeps you shallow. It keeps you away from going deep with anyone, and especially God. And yet Jesus presses in. He doesn't want to wait in the shallows. Jesus doesn't want a shallow relationship with you. He wants a deep one, and he's going to keep pressing in until he gets one. You see, Jesus is doing something. He's bringing the sin to the light. And now he's showing her, hey, you're looking for multiple marriages to give you what you need for satisfaction. I'm here to tell you that's not giving you what you need. I just put a finger on it, and you're ashamed that you're even a part of that. or You don't even want to talk about it. You're ashamed, but here I am. I'm the one who can give you living water. I'm the one who can really satisfy you. Look to me. 
Look to me and I can really, truly satisfy you. The road of multiple marriages has left her empty. But he's saying, turn to me now. And so she's trying to keep Jesus at bay with where. Where should we worship Jesus? And he seems to go with her, right? But, but then he goes deep again, right? She goes, Jesus, where should we, where should we worship? And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship. Jesus goes, mountains, mountains, it won't matter where. It won't matter where we worship. Only that true worshipers are worshiping in spirit. Jesus won't let her go. He's going deep again. It only, it only matters that you're worshiping in spirit and in truth. Jesus won't let her go. You see, first, Jesus offers living water. And she goes, yeah, Jesus, but where's your bucket? Where are you going to draw that water from? Then he offers it again. It's going to be water that wells up to eternal life. You'll never thirst again. And she seems to offer it like, yeah, Jesus, I'll take that. If I don't have to come back here and hear the ridicule of everyone, yeah, all right, I'll take that. And here's Jesus again. She's trying to push him away again. Where should we worship Jesus? And Jesus won't have it. It won't matter where. It matters that true worshipers are worshiping in spirit and in truth. And then he turns to her and he says, For the Father is seeking such to worship him. The Father is seeking such to worship him. I'm not sure what brought you all here today. Maybe you've just come because that's what you do on Sundays, like what I used to. You just go to church on Sundays, that's what you do. Maybe you're visiting somebody, I don't know. But I'm here to tell you, you are here by divine appointment. Just like how Jesus set up that appointment with the women at the well. He's brought you here. He's in pursuit of you. He's in pursuit. He knows what you run to for satisfaction, for pleasure, for approval. He knows what you run to. He knows what you've been doing when no one else has been around. But he also knows this. He also knows that you're not really satisfied. He brought you here to press into you. He brought you here to expose the deadness of your heart, the hardness of your heart. And what he wants to do is he wants to put that into the light. And he wants to pour the living water that truly satisfies to give you a new heart. He wants to show you that your belief, that, that tunnel vision, that you only think that that thing can satisfy you, he wants to tear that tunnel down. He wants to smash it to pieces. He wants to show you that he's the one that can truly satisfy you. He knows where you run to. He knows that you run to those broken cisterns. He knows your sin. He knows your sin so intimately. He knows your sin so intimately that your sin was placed upon him. He knows your sin that intimately. Jesus on the cross Jesus became sin, taking on the sin of the world. He was innocent. He was spotless. And yet our sin was placed upon him. And the death that we, that we deserved, 
He took it. He took the punishment we deserve. And instead, we live with him and we are credited his perfect righteousness. God was in such pursuit of you that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So drink. Stare into Jesus and drink the living water and be satisfied. Let it well up in your soul that it would, be, that it would well up into eternal life. God is good, so we don't have to look anywhere else. Let's pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you don't leave us where we are. God, we were dead in our transgressions. A dead person cannot do anything, and yet you came in pursuit you showed us that what we think satisfies doesn't really satisfy. And that true satisfaction comes from you. You didn't shirk away from the fact that you were superior. You just stated the truth. I am better. You can take this living water and never thirst again. And it will well up to eternal life. God, help us to see our idols for what it is, what we run to for satisfaction, lies that lead to death. God, we're prone to wander. So God, take our heart and seal it for your courts above. God, we are prone to go away from you, but God, just continue to sanctify us, continue to help us repent and to confess our sin and to turn back to you. God, apart from you, we can do nothing. So God, do a work in us and help us to see the truth. God, those things don't satisfy us, really. Help our unbelief that you don't satisfy. God, you truly satisfy. God, I pray that you would make that real to us, like you made yourself real to me, God. I just thank you. I pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.